The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, a look at the U.S. labor market with the February jobs report. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where we're looking ahead to the U.K. government's budget announcement and a key political moment ahead of the election due later this year. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look ahead to the National People's Congress meetings in Beijing next week. What sort of prescriptions will they have to fix the Chinese economy? That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the business news you need to wrap up your week. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby. We begin today's program with a look ahead to the February jobs report here in the U.S., and the state of the U.S. labor market. For a preview, we're joined by Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. All right, well, after a big upside surprise in January, 353,000 jobs added, what are you expecting to see for February? Uh, sort of a return to what was considered somewhat normal. Uh, the forecast at this point is for 180,000 jobs. That may change 10, 20,000 either way as we get more data in between uh, now and next Friday. But basically, that's roughly where we have been for the past year, two years. The revisions higher to December and uh, January were quite a surprise, and nobody thinks that that can be sustained. But if it can, you watch the bond markets move. But the unemployment rate expected to hold steady, 3.7%. That would be about two years under 4%. It would be one month over two years, yes. Two wow. years and a month. And that is uh, probably, cl- well, it's close to a record. 1968, I think, when half of American men were serving in Vietnam. So <laughs> there weren't as many people to work. Uh that was the last time we saw anything like this. The question is, is if the unemployment rate stays that low, do we see any inflationary impact from that? So uh, we'll be looking at average hourly earnings very closely. They were up six-tenths of a percent in January. Now, there may have been some distortions in the data that uh, led to that, but they're only expected to be up two-tenths of a percent. So if that's the case for February, then we can have big job gains, and the Fed isn't going to worry about it. And, I mean, let's face it, there are challenges right now to the labor market, not just AI jobs and automation jobs, but uh, we've seen a lot of corporate layoffs being announced. Big ones, Cisco Systems, that's 4,000 jobs. Estee Lauder, 3,100. Nike, Expedia, I mean, none of these, or most of them, are not tech companies. So there is a change going on. Well, there's a change going on, but it is not going to be as bad as it appears. If we see 
a huge wave of layoffs, that would be one thing. But what we're seeing is a lot of companies sort of right-sizing what they think they need for um, the months going forward. And what happens is that companies always announce layoffs, either in a, in a, a press release or they do it as part of their earnings, but they don't announce hirings. And so uh, when you look at uh, what happens, uh, there are millions of jobs lost every month. And there are millions of jobs gained every month. And the number that we report is the net difference between the two. So, uh, yes, there will be a lot of layoffs going into the data. But is it significantly more than usually happens? That's going to be the question going forward. Well, it's sort of like Apple. They're going to eliminate their EV unit, no electric cars. But 2,000 workers will just work on AI. Yeah. They're going to shift right over. And yeah. a lot of the jobs that uh, companies cut are cut through attrition anyway. So they're not affecting the unemployment rate because people are not all of a sudden unemployed. Gotcha. Another big event this week you want to talk about, and that is Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is going to be on Capitol Hill. That's always a big deal for Wall Street. The chairman is the one who sets the agenda. Powell basically says he's not driving the agenda the way that Alan Greenspan did, say, or Ben Bernanke. He's much more collaborative. But it is still the chairman to whom everybody defers. And so what Powell says about the economy is going to be worth a lot more than what any of these other Fed officials, as important and as smart as they are, have to say. So uh, you're going to have everybody tuning in, particularly to his opening statement, to see if he uh, makes any kind of reference to when or by how much they might cut. Uh, and then they'll be listening for Q&A for his reaction to things like layoffs and uh, how strong the labor market is and whether they think uh, the January inflation numbers, whether CPI, PPI, or, or the PCE, uh, really reflect what's going on with the strength that they showed. Well, I know you'll be listening, and uh, you can hear Chairman Powell's testimony Wednesday and Thursday live right here on Bloomberg Radio. Well, our thanks to Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. And now we move to the U.S. retail sector and a closely watched fourth quarter earnings report out on Tuesday from Target. Whether it may give us a more clear picture on the health of the U.S. consumer and how stubbornly high inflation may be affecting spending. Now, for a preview, we're joined by John Edwards. He's Bloomberg News U.S. Consumer Team Leader. John, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Well, let's start with what you expect the headline numbers to be from Target in mm -hmm. this what's the holiday quarter, an all-important one? Yeah, well, what we're looking for is a continued decline in uh, same-store sales uh, from Target. Uh, and they have um, you know, had that figure going down uh, for some time now. Um, the previous uh, quarter's report did excite the market uh, in, uh, largely because of improvements in inventory management. So we'll be watching to see if that continues. Uh, but uh, you know, the stock is up pretty significantly uh, since that report. So uh, expectations are, are fairly high, even though the, the business uh, continues in, in some areas to struggle. You know, we, so we do expect those same store sales to be down once again. 
But, uh, you know, we'll be looking for the trend, what they say about, you know, what they're seeing in terms of uh, continued consumer strength. That was, you know, certainly something that Walmart pointed to in their uh, results recently. Yeah, it, the same source sales drop, not just Target, not just discounters. Yeah. It's across the board, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're seeing some uh, some retailers manage to uh, to bring those sales up a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, the consumer is uh, resilient, but but picky is, is what we're seeing. You know, uh, people are being very, uh, the way Walmart put it was, uh, you know, choiceful uh, in... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a new one, choiceful. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, in, in how they approach uh, their, their spending. So, you know, they, uh, you know, employment remains uh, robust. So that's, that's a support. Uh, but, uh, you know, inflation, even though it's moderated, uh, remains, you know, elevated from, uh, you know, pre-pandemic, and people remember what things, you know, used to cost only, you know, three or four years ago. So, uh, so that sort of, uh, you know, reigns in spending a little bit, and and has people, you know, uh, continuing to to spend, but being uh, picky about it. So. Given that Target is pretty exposed to uh, you know those discretionary uh, items, uh, you know the sort of general merchandise, that's uh, part of where their struggle comes from in, in terms of bringing those same store sales up. Yeah, and they know their customers though. They are mm-hmm. a nimble retailer and. Just last week, they announced a new springtime clothing collection. Yep, with most uh, prices under fifty bucks. Who is it? Uh, uh, Dion von Furstenberg. There yes. you go. So yes, they've they've uh, you know had that uh, tradition for some time of uh, you know enlisting uh, major designers for uh, capsule collections, and uh, that has done pretty well for them. Yeah. Uh, they also have a new in-house brand called Dealworthy. Mm, yeah. And that is uh, hundreds of items, mm-hmm. some as low as a dollar each. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know they do have that uh, that value uh, proposition as well. You know, so they certainly try to be uh, you know sort of um, uh, current and uh, and somewhat fashionable, but uh, always mindful of you know keeping those prices relatively low. Yeah. Now let me ask you about Macy's mm-hmm. uh, announcing that over the next few years it's going to close 150 stores, mm-hmm. and they're obviously pivoting toward a more upscale consumer, right? With Bloomingdale's, Blue Mercury. Are discounters like Target, Walmart going to be the beneficiary of those closings? Mm-hmm. You know, to some extent, but uh, you know, a lot of it depends on uh, you know really the the mix of retail in a given area. It's uh, often uh, there isn't a uh, sort of one to one exchange between a you know big uh, traditional department store like a Macy's and uh, you know more of a discount model like a uh, Target or a Walmart. But uh, yeah, certainly, uh, you know, they they can expect to see uh, some uh, pickup from from some of those uh, lost shoppers. But a lot of it, and and a lot of why those, those stores are closing in the first place is, you know, a lot of it will just shift online. And uh, you know, and and certainly, you know, Target, Walmart, and others will hope that some of those online sales they pick up as well. But a lot of them will continue to go to Amazon, and you know, as as we've uh, as we've seen before, as we see in our own homes. Indeed, <laughs> we do. Right. Yeah. Now that that Target has made a big push online, it is also a subscription-based plan like Amazon Prime, like Walmart Plus. What's what's the status on that? Yeah, well, listen to hear if uh, we get any update on that. Uh, you know, our um, reporter uh, Jay Wan Kang broke the news that uh, Target is considering a uh, a membership program along those lines, which could launch as soon as this year. We're not sure exactly when, but uh, you know, and, and they're somewhat you know late uh, getting into that market, uh, given that you know Prime is well established and. Uh, Walmart Plus seems to be doing pretty well. 
but uh, you know it's another way to uh, you know get shoppers to be stickier, keep coming back to your uh, locations uh, looking for those membership points. Well, that's great. A lot to look forward to. Well, our thanks to John Edwards, Bloomberg News, U.S. Consumer Team Leader. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look ahead to the U.K.'s tax and spending plans for the coming year. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, we look ahead to a gathering of China's top political advisory body and legislature. But first, in the UK, the government preparing to present its tax and spending plans for the coming year. It could be the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's last chance to announce big policy changes before a general election due this year. But will economic headwinds prevent him from making his mark? The key question everyone wants answered is, Will he prioritize cutting taxes over bolstering public services? And for more, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, the ceremonial red box used to carry the Chancellor's budget speech is being dusted off and speculation is rife about its contents. Jeremy Hunt and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak have been at pains to paint themselves as responsible stewards of the UK's public finances, especially after the previous Conservative government sparked a crisis in the gilt markets with their tax and spending plans. During the Chancellor's last big announcement in November, he promised measures to back British business and soothe the cost of living crisis. This time around, things might be working out in his favour. The UK's fiscal watchdog responsible for checking the plans has disclosed it's preparing forecast using data that will potentially improve the public finances and create more room for things like tax cuts. But Jeremy Hunt will still have to balance steps that might please voters ahead of an election expected later this year and being fiscally responsible. Ahead of the budget, lobby groups have been lining up with their shopping list for the Chancellor. On the Bloomberg UK Politics podcast, we spoke to the manufacturing group Make UK. They've laid out a plan for radical changes to how the British economy is managed, including splitting up the Treasury into separate economy and finance ministers. Here's some of what Make UK's Chief Operating Officer Ben Fletcher told us about what they want to hear from the Chancellor. We are still one of the 10 biggest manufacturing nations on earth. And in the last 12 months, we've actually overtaken France to move from ninth to eighth in the global league table. So British manufacturing is strong, it's healthy, uh, and it's a, it's a sector that is, uh, that is in, 
in a position where it can start to grow. What we're looking for, I think, is a recognition from government that we're a huge part of the economy, that there is real potential there. And we are making some fairly radical uh, requests of government and indeed in what's likely to be an election year, the opposition parties as well. Because what we're saying is there's a kind of hidden gem here within the economy. It could deliver you some really substantial growth. Uh, it would support uh, a huge number of new businesses and growing businesses. It would lead to growth in other ancillary and related sectors like logistics and, and so on. But what we do need, I think, is a bold vision for manufacturing and a policy agenda that, that reflects that, responds to that and really seizes the opportunity that we're presented with today. Is this essentially about just wanting more money from the government? I mean, if you're looking for more defence spending, that's one way of funneling money into the sector that you represent. But the UK is never really going to be able to compete with spending from the likes of the US. Um, it isn't just about money. I think what our central ask is for quite some time now and today really distills this and brings it together uh, on the back of our big national conference. What we're saying is that we need a plan. Uh, and unlike most of our big competitor nations around the world, Britain doesn't have an industrial strategy and it doesn't really have a clear plan. Government expenditure is always important. Uh, and uh, when we think about defence, uh, very importantly for our sector, big infrastructure projects as well, um, government expenditure is vitally important uh, for triggering private sector investment. But the really big message of today is that if we're going to grow, if we're going to deal with the very threatening landscape that we face, if we're going to continue to be uh, a major manufacturing power, the thing that we're going to need from the government and the message that we're sending to the opposition parties is very consistent. We really need a plan because the nations that we're competing with do have much clearer plans. That's very important for triggering inward investment. It's really important at the moment for triggering confidence. And when we think about both defence and infrastructure, we think about the challenge of net zero and moving our car industry uh, in a massively different direction. We're going to need to have really clear skills policies. We're going to need a massive investment in people leaving school and college with the right kind of skills and the right kind of qualifications. So whatever uh, set of issues we look at, whether it be defence, whether it be challenging net zero, whether we think about some of the big challenges of automation and digitisation, which are going to be absolute game changers in, in British manufacturing. What we need are a series of decisions by government that can enable us to have the workforce of the future to allow the current workforce to transform, but really importantly, set a very clear message to the big private sector businesses that they can have the confidence to invest. Because if we get government spending right, the thing that will absolutely dwarf that is private sector investment and we need the right landscape for that. That was Make UK's Chief Operating Officer Ben Fletcher speaking to Lizzie Burden and I on the Bloomberg UK Politics podcast. To help us look ahead to what to expect from the budget is our UK government reporter Joe Mays. Joe, great to have you with us. First of all, how much do we know about how much money Jeremy Hunt has to play with in the budget? So we have latest forecasts that the OBR has been giving Jeremy Hunt and our latest understanding is that he has about £13 billion to play with. Now, that is much less than he had at the autumn statement in November, and it's near an historic low. So he really is starting from a, a weak position compared to chancellors in the past. And that's the, the framework that he's having to wrestle with when coming up with his tax and spend decisions. Yeah, so the, the fiscal rules here are very important because they're sort of a guideline for how governments have to make these decisions. How important is it that he comes in under that 13 billion? 
Yeah, so the fiscal rule is that you need to have national debt falling as a share of the size of the economy within five years. It's a self-imposed rule, but markets like it, and it's seen to be the test that you need to pass to maintain credibility with markets to respect that rule. And he's at 13 billion now. He would like to do things like cut income tax and cut national insurance, but each of those measures takes him closer and closer to breaking the rule. So he has to be careful about that. And we think that he's likely to want to maintain a buffer of, say, five or six billion. You always want to, you always want to keep something above that that, 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 that that zero figure, just in case there are shocks, just in case you know, things go for turn for the worse. So that's where we think he'd like to end up. But obviously, the, the other thing to add is that he can boost the headroom. And that's what you can do through spending decisions, for example. You could say, let's not spend as much in the future, gives us more money to play with now. That'll be a politically controversial thing to do, but it could boost the headroom. So he can manipulate that headroom figure, but uh, there are difficult choices. And interestingly, you've actually put these difficult choices into a game that people can go on the Bloomberg website and play and decide how exactly, if they were Chancellor for the day, they do it. Just talk us through how the game works. So yeah, it, it took me, what, 30 seconds a minute to explain that nature of the fiscal so, so now you can try yeah so apply. so i thought what, what what better way could we do this well let's make a game where you just are thrown into the scenario yourself and you have that headroom given to you and you have to make choices so you're right we have this budget game on bloomberg.com where you can decide will you cut income tax will you cut national insurance will you cut inheritance tax you have all these tax and spend choices and at the end of it you're given a result how would markets react how would voters react to your choices you know, we, we use our best uh kind of estimates of what's likely to happen and you get a result. So yeah, I encourage all our listeners to play the game. It's, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting exercise because you essentially... It's it's because it's yes or no choices. Do you want to do this? And then, you know, when you get to the end, it decides whether or not you've crashed the economy. I think on our team, we have about a 50-50 rate of who's crashed the economy and who hasn't, uh, which I think is probably almost, um, I'm not going to make a a parallel to um, previous chancellors and how they've performed on this as well. Um, But it says it lays out the the difficult balance that has to be struck uh, at a moment like this. We're also in an election year in the UK, so that means that also the Chancellor has one eye on what's going to win votes. Talk us through some of the measures that we do think he's going to to take uh, when he gets up to make that budget speech. So we think it's very likely he's going to prioritise personal tax cuts, because those are the tax cuts that are likely to have most impact on the popularity of the Conservative Party and help them to win the next election. And so that will take the form of, we expect, an income tax cut of at least you know, one percentage point on the on the basic rate. That would save people about £200 a year for an average earner. Um, he'd like to go further. He would like to do, say, 2p off income tax. Um, but it all comes down to that headroom question we've just been talking about. He also might cut national insurance, which is a payroll tax, and he already reduced national insurance by two pence in the pound in the autumn statement. He might do that again because he sees it as a measure which also incentivizes people to return to the labour market because it makes work more attractive, and that can boost growth as well. And He's always trying to look at measures that will boost, boost growth in the economy. That helps his numbers from the OBR as well. But then there's also a list of things that are kind of on the table, but might not happen, but might happen. So, for example, we're reporting that the non-DOM tax status, that might be abolished because that would be a a move that would raise revenue. It would also jam labour to a certain extent because labour are assuming that they could use the revenues from scrapping non-DOM tax status to fund some of their own policies. Because so, this was the policy that Labour had been talking about for quite a long time. And exactly. it's a special status applied to typically 
very wealthy individuals who yes. have earnings coming from outside the UK and thus able to benefit from a tax advantage. And closing this loophole is actually, when you ask Labour politicians, as, as you and I do frequently, what they're going to do if they win the next election, it comes up quite frequently as one of the things they're going to do to boost tax revenues. Yes. So the potential that the Conservatives could decide to do it before them, an interesting an interesting consideration. Yes, exactly, because Labour have repeatedly been saying, oh, we would fund you know, more doctors and lots of nice things with the revenue raised from scrapping the non-tax status. But if the Tories have already done that and have spent that money themselves on a tax cut elsewhere, then Labour have lost that. So that's why you can see there's, like, there'll be a political advantage for the Tories if they did scrap the non-tax uh, non status. And um, yeah. And the other dilemma here is also the question of public services. There's been an awful lot of discussion about how public services are under pressure, particularly the health service here in the UK. And the question of how much money these services need also comes into the budget play. And, and as you mentioned, you know, the Chancellor can choose to pull back on some spending decisions. That's something that could prove very controversial. Yes, and the... The situation Hunt already has is an autumn statement where he baked in spending plans that were already seen as rather unlikely and criticised by economists and the argument being, look, you're perhaps unlikely to ever have to implement those plans if you don't win the next election. So there's very little cost to you to having an implausibly low assumption for future public spending. But then you use that, what's been described by the OBR and others as a, as a fiction, use that fiction to create revenue now that you can spend on tax cuts. Let's talk a little bit about the politics that comes behind this, because even within the Conservative Party, there's a lot of debate over where the Chancellor should apportion his, his limited choices, as we've been discussing, even within his own supporters? Yes, there is. I mean, there are those on the right of the Conservative Party, kind of those backers of Liz Truss, who would say that you should do things like cut inheritance tax, for example. That's a, they, they say that would be a, a widely popular measure. They also want to go and be more aggressive on things like corporation tax and cutting that and uh, doing more for business and so on. But it feels like those in the more the centre of the party, those closest to Hunt, are more conscious of the electoral dynamics and thinking that personal tax cuts that which you can sell to your average voter are perhaps more preferable at this time and therefore we should do that. So yeah, there are, there are splits within the Tory camp and Hunt has to decide who he's going to go with. Okay, should make for a very interesting budget day. Joe Mays, our UK government reporter, thank you very much for joining us with the details of that and of course we will have full coverage of the budget here on Bloomberg. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Stephen. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we look ahead to a gathering of China's top political advisory body and legislature. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. 
Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. China's top political advisory body and legislature gathering for their annual two sessions. What should we be watching for during the eight-day meeting? For more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia hosts Brian Curtis and Doug Krisner. Tom, we look forward to the annual meetings of China's parliament, the National People's Congress. Next week, the NPC will set policies that will guide the economy over the next year. It's an opportunity for policymakers to do a kind of reset, to shore up confidence in consumers, in businesses, and investors. Now, in terms of what to expect, Bloomberg Intelligence thinks the NPC will announce a larger budget deficit for the government. That means more fiscal spending. In addition, our economists are expecting more supportive monetary policy, along with additional efforts to smooth out the correction of the property market. And then, as we heard from Catherine Young at Fidelity, there's also messaging. There's definitely a messaging that seems to be coming from the regulators about you know, what they're going to say at the MPC. But in reality, it's probably going to be this continuation of tweaking of accommodative measures. So areas of the economy that need support, such as property, are likely to be key in terms of their focus. But really it is about restoring confidence, especially with the consumer, and then the knock-on effect would obviously be an impact on corporates and the overall market. That is Catherine Young at Fidelity. And as we mentioned earlier, restoring confidence may require more deficit spending by the government. Bloomberg's Jill Deeses says that will be key in showing how far policymakers are willing to go to revive the economy. I think um, what we'd be looking for out of this meeting is, um, you know, what they're going to be setting that budget at, uh, how much um, in sovereign debt they plan on issuing this year, what exactly that level of calculation looks like. Because as we know, uh, China is still dealing with a lot of serious economic pressures that don't really seem to be going away. And they've got to kind of manage what that recovery and growth trajectory looks like. In the run-up to the NPC meeting, the economy did actually see a modest reprieve of late consumption, picking up slightly during the Lunar New Year holidays. The CSI 300 has bounced about 10 to 12 percent, and while property is still soft, it weakened in January at a slower pace than in December. Well, joining us now for a deeper look at the NPC meetings is Jenny Marsh, Bloomberg team leader for Greater China EcoGov. So, Jenny, let's delve right into a couple of specific items first before we get to some of the uh, sort of broader takeaways from the meetings. The setting of a growth target, what that might be, and then also what sort of level of deficit spending might we see as a percentage of GDP? What can we expect? So the consensus um, among most economists right now is that they're going to maintain the target of around 5%. Um, so it's not going to be below 5 I think, is what most people are expecting. Um, the caveat there is that, you know, it's going to be much harder to achieve this year because 2023 uh, had the benefit of the low base of, you know, 
previous year when uh, the COVID restrictions really impacted um, activity. So I, I think it's important that the government does keep this around 5%, not below 5%, because it's going to be all about confidence. You know, one of the biggest things that plagued the Chinese economy last year was a crisis in confidence among investors, um, you know, foreign business people and consumers. So they've got to come out with a, a positive message. But at the same time, it does have to be realistic because it's going to be a lot of work and sort of careful policymaking this year to make sure they don't undershoot their own target. So maybe we can agree that up until this point, Beijing has been fairly restrained in trying to provide additional stimulus to get the economy going. The question is whether or not we begin to see a pivot point at the NPC where things are modulated, maybe to a higher rate than what we have seen in the past. Do you think that's likely? I think they're going to continue on the same course. You know, I think... um, Premier Li Chang was very clear when he was speaking at Davos in January, saying, you know, uh, they'd reached 5.2%. He front-run that number for last year, saying they'd done it without stimulus. You know, he seemed very proud of this. So I think, you know, that's a very clear signal um, that they're not going to go back to sort of the old playbook of using sort of really big, broad stimulus. But I think what we might see is more targeted help um, for sectors that really need it, so such as property. Um, you know, support for local governments by sort of shifting debt from uh, local provinces onto the central um, government's balance sheet, Um, whether that comes in the actual official um, fiscal deficit target or if they do what they did last year where they sort of tweak it during the year. Um, to sort of put more spending on the um, on the central government's budget remains to be seen. Yeah, there has been a kind of a incremental move up in the level of deficit spending. It used to be three percent was the target, then three point two, and you hear about three and a half percent or maybe even more. I'm curious whether or not our team at Bloomberg Economics thinks that it would would it send a bad message if it was say raised to four percent or something like that. I think four percent would be quite dramatic. Yeah. Um, so. I don't know if that would send a bad message. Um, you know, it, it would send a signal for sure that the government's willing to take on more debt. I mean, 3% uh, is an extremely low um, deficit ratio target anyway for an economy the size of China's. When it comes to growth, one of the themes that we have heard in the past is high quality development. And I suspect that we're going to hear that theme reiterated. And as we know, there have been instances where Regulators have really been uh, able to kind of clamp down on a lot of the entrepreneurial spirit as it relates to high tech, particularly. And I'm wondering whether we're going to see some acknowledgement of overreach, maybe, and and also an admission that regulators and authorities need to embrace the entrepreneurial class. And this is a really powerful way of, of driving growth going forward. A high quality development, I think, is one of the key things sort of to be watching out for. Um, Xi Jinping like increased his uh, mentions of the slogan last year, I think, to 138 times, which was sort of double the previous year. Mm-hmm. So they're really ramping up. But yeah, it's still this kind of fuzzy sort of phrase that people don't fully understand what it means. It, it sort of broadly seems to mean that they're OK with um, not prioritizing chasing sort of growth and they want to prioritize slower growth if it's more sustainable and, you know, isn't going to sort of um, saddle the country with more debt through things like stimulus. Um, I think that sort of will lead us to sort of look out for signals on, um, you know, green innovation, perhaps EVs, more support for that, supply chain resilience. Um, There's also another phrase I think people are going to be watching out for within that umbrella, which is new productive forces. 
And that's a, a saying that she introduced um, during a trip to Hello Jian at the end of last year and then sort of since was mentioned in a Politburo study session. Another broad fuzzy phrase that's sort of hard to pin down. So I think any any meat that they put on the bone uh, within the work report and various other documents that are published will be something investors are very, very keen mm. to sort of uh, get information on. So we talked a couple of times here in this discussion about the possibility of more debt. So we're curious whether or not that would be at the national or the provincial level. We put that question earlier to Bloomberg's Jill Desis about getting the balance right. The line that China has to walk this year is that they're really concerned about local governments in particular taking on more debt than um, you know they're able to afford. There's been a lot of chatter about whether or not the central government needs to take a larger role um, in terms of uh, you know taking on some of that debt and alleviating some of those burdens among local governments. Again, Jill Desis from the Bloomberg Eco Government team. So, Jenny, what's our thinking? Will we see more at the national level, or will it fall back down to the provincial level? You know, I think the trend that we were seeing towards the end of last year was the government was shifting to putting it um, on at the national level uh, for the reason that, you know, they, they do not want this uh, problem of local governments being in debt and sort of having sort of teetering on default to continue. Um, so I, I think that's what most people are expecting. You know, there are sort of other risks from that, though. I think, you know, we, we wrote last year about the fact that while it's well and good, for the government to take on more debt to prevent local governments sort of going to these hidden um, financing vehicles to, f- to finance infrastructure to sort of boost uh, their economies, you know, it comes with greater control for the central government. So when the government is raising these funds themselves and then distributing them out to the provinces, they get to decide more who gets what pile of the pot. And so there's a risk that when you do that, you can disincentivize local officials uh, who no longer, you know, have this system where if they are working hard and being innovative, they're sort of generating their own revenue, they're perhaps relying on handouts from the government. So I think it's a good idea in practice and it's going to sort of uh, sort of go some way to um, sort of address some of the risks involved in local government spending. But they also have to sort of manage um, how those funds are dished out and make sure they keep the local officials also motivated. So we've talked about the crisis of confidence, both among consumers and businesses. We know that. We know about the problem in the property market. That's apparent. Uh, Chinese stocks have uh, been floundering near five-year lows, a lot of concern about economic growth going forward. We haven't mentioned the deflation story. That is obviously deep into levels that we haven't seen since the global financial crisis. Brian and I were talking last week with our own John Liu from our bureau in Beijing about whether it's fair to compare what China is going through these days with the turmoil that was seen back in 2015. Here's John Liu. The relationship with the United States is much worse than it was in 2015. That was the Obama administration. China hosted the G20. Barack Obama and Xi Jinping stood up at the G20 in Hanzhou and announced that the U.S. and China were going to cooperate on uh, carbon goals. That period of time has ended. Uh, at the same time, there are other issues. The the population in China is now shrinking. There's a demographic sort of conundrum that is much more pronounced now than it was in 2015. Yeah, that's John Liu in Beijing. And it it does raise a point here, Jenny, about if the United States relationship with China is really weighing on the Chinese economy. Yeah, I mean, I I think when we when we've conducted surveys um, among investors and economists, it comes up as sort of one of the top concerns, the geopolitical swings. I would say since um, 
since the Xi Biden meeting, things seem to have really leveled off and the relationship has improved. But, you know, there's a U.S. election looming this year. And one of the candidates, uh, or presumed candidates, is threatening 60% tariffs on China. So there's a lot of headwinds um, in, in the pipeline. And so for U.S. companies in China, they don't know at the moment, you know, what sort of um, trade curves are down the road. So I would say it's a year full of unknowns right now in terms of the U.S.-China relationship. Are we likely to get any guidance on how much more the government is willing to spend for its military budget? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things that we'll be looking out for in the work report. Um, And it tends to increase every single year. I think China has the second highest military budget in the world after the U.S. So we'll certainly be looking out for that. Um, And also sort of any language um, in any of the reports around Taiwan. I think last year it was kind of fairly accommodative language um, that we saw sort of saying that they were looking for like peaceful relationships and to sort of improve ties uh, in the two places economies rather than any warmongering um, talk. So we'll also be on the lookout for that as well. Jenny, we'll have to have you back in the week ahead when we start to get details of uh, the NPC meeting. That is Bloomberg's Jenny Marsh, the team leader for Greater China Eco and Gov. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 9 a.m. in Hong Kong, 8 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Our thanks to Brian and Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of visit bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more